I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 123. I've got it now. That's me saying I've got it now is a reference to something you haven't heard. But I'm sure you can imagine how wonderful it was. So um, I will introduce my co-host in a moment. So he just has to sit here. You know what? I'll bring him in now. Josh Long. Hi. Hey. I'm so glad to be in. Feel free to weigh in on any of these announcements. I'm going to say exactly what I think. Number one. That's the first number. Oh, boy. Not, don't, don't comment on every part of oh, it. Oh, okay. Uh, there are a couple new articles on the website. Uh, one is written by Robert Hornack, who wrote a review of a documentary called That's Not Funny, which is a film that I'm a big fan of. Uh, Mike Celestino, the director, has been on BP. Uh, when they did a Blu-ray release, he invited me to be a part of the commentary, which, felt, which was really great to be a part of. And so it's a film that I really endorse um and it's actually available on youtube you can find it and watch it in its entirety i would say beware if you are sensitive um there's some major language going on and they you know they're basically exploring what is and is not appropriate in comedy and so they talk about gender they talk about race they talk about you know all kinds of horrible things and so uh so yeah be ready for that but it is a film that actually i from a comedic standpoint, I'd say I agree with it 100%. And so if you are a fan of comedy, then I'd say check it out and then go read Robert Hornack's review. Uh, we do have another review, this one by Reed Lackey, in which he talks about Morton Tildum's uh, The Imitation Game, which is a film that uh, neither Josh nor I were big fans of. Uh, but it is certainly serviceable in some ways. And Reed actually uh, found some stuff in the film that, that I did not see. And uh, and has a really in-depth discussion about that. And so uh, you can find that at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, and then lastly, we mentioned this on the uh, mini-sode last week. Uh, I am going to, in April, I'm going to be at the International Christian Film Festival. More Than One Lesson has a vendor's table there. And I'm very excited about it. But, of course, I don't live in Orlando, so I'm going to have to, on top of paying for the vendor's table, I'm paying to fly out there, and I'm paying to rent a car. I'm, I'm going to be staying with, uh, with a friend, thankfully, but, uh, but there are some expenses, and so if you felt like uh, donating to the show to help out with that, we would certainly appreciate it. And uh, I wanted to, oh yes, and also, if we have any listeners in Orlando, the situation is this. Uh, it's Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and uh, it's going to be me manning the table by myself, and that could be, you know, a little frustrating uh, because I, I I need to be able to like you know go to the bathroom or grab something to eat and know that people are still getting you know people are still coming up to the table and getting the information they need. So if you live in Orlando or the Orlando area. Uh, and you wanted to help me out, uh, specifically on Thursday and Friday, uh, I would really appreciate it. Just email me, Tyler, more than one lesson.com. And, uh, Hey, you get to hang out with me all day. That's shoot. I shouldn't have said that. That is going to drive people away. How about if they show up, they don't have to see you at all. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be an initial sh handshake at the beginning. Right. And if you, if you do well enough, then you can be the new host. How's that? Can we do that? You can be the new co-host. That's a win for all involved. Well, but then uh, who? Uh, how would that? How would that happen? Well, see, I would uh, fire you. Okay. With great relish. 
Okay, I'm not following you. I'm saying I would put relish on a hot dog, give it to you, and say, here's your parting gift. You are no longer the co-host of More Than One Lesson. Now I understand, and I think I'm okay with that since you said that the relish would be great. Oh, it's it's the best. It's the best relish. All right. Uh, but so, yes. people, please help Tyler out so I can get this relish <laughs> that you've been hearing so much about. Um yeah, so uh, if you feel like that's something that you'd be interested in, just email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com, and we will work out the details. All right. I think that is about it. Um, yeah, so I guess we'll just jump uh, jump right in. So this week, we are finally getting around, after several, after about a month, we are finally getting around to Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu's Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. I'm only going to refer to it as Birdman. Uh, during the Oscars, when they or the, the when they were announcing the nominees, I happened to be at an airport watching it on my iPad because I had nothing else to do, and um, and I think it was you know I think the president of the Academy or whatever uh, came out and they she was sure to say you know such and such nominated for director. Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. And I thought, yeah, I guess that is the full title. And I, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, I still say Dr. Strangelove, but I do acknowledge that I love doing an or title. I think those are fun. Uh, it's just, ex- it's tiresome. You know, we've all got yeah, but, places to be, but the thing is then you can give your movie a like weird, complicated, long or obtuse title, but people don't have to call it by that. That's true. Like if they had called Dr. Strangelove, just how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb, people yes. probably wouldn't have liked that movie so much. Cause it would have gotten tired about the title. That's true. But if it has the two titles, then everyone can call it by the easy one. Everyone knows what you're talking about. I think that we should just start referring to Birdman as, hey, do you know what movie I love is The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. I and think that movie's like, great. What do you what do you mean? Oh, do you mean Birdman? I'm like, well, potato potato. Ex- yeah, exactly. It does say it or. or. It can be either one you want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, the full title is either Birdman or <laughs> The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Okay, now that we've really uh, dissected, that's not the word. Uh overemphasize the uh, the ti- the intricacies of the title uh let's jump into the film itself so uh in 2014 there were really only a handful of movies i was genuinely looking forward to mm. uh one of them was paul thomas anderson's inherent vice which i wound up not loving as much as i wanted to um i was looking forward to the grand budapest hotel but it came mm-hmm. out fairly early in the year so there wasn't a whole lot of there wasn't time for that expectation to grow. Yeah. So, but I'd say right up there with inherent vice Birdman was the film that I was really looking forward to. It looked like it was doing something really unique. I was excited to see Michael Keaton on screen again. Mm-hmm, it looked yeah. like Edward Norton was doing really great work. And I was excited to see a, <laughs> a notoriously dour filmmaker mm-hmm. attempt to make a comedy. Yeah. Now I would say, I will say, uh, in general that uh this is the kind of comedy he would make yeah uh he didn't make uh tommy boy you know um yeah there's still he's still very i'd say inurito is something of a virtuoso filmmaker Mm -hmm. and this is a very there's a virtuoso quality to the film in many ways Mm -hmm. and there are times when i wonder if maybe that aspect undercuts the comedy of it mm-hmm. but because it is because it's the type of comedy that it is which is deeply melancholy uh i i think that's fine um so i was really looking forward to it and then i 
got to see a press screening, which I invited you along to as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think, I, I'm, I don't think I was underwhelmed by it, but it was more, I think I maybe had built it up in my mind to be something just absolutely astounding and parts of it are astounding. And, and it often wound up not being the thing, like subverting my expectations, hmm. uh, whether it be the choice of score or the use of magical realism mm-hmm. or the seeming continue, you know, one long take, which obviously it is not, but mm-hmm. it's meant to seem that way. Just right and left in Yuri 2 makes different choices than I would have expected. And, uh, you know, when you first, when that first happens, if you're me, you're just like, ah, but then you think, well, why am I reacting like that? (laughs) Just because it doesn't fit with what I expected because what I expected was probably way more conventional than this is. Yeah. So I think by the end I, I came around to be not even by the end, but pretty, pretty quick. Actually. Um, I came around to just sort of going with the flow and embracing what the film was going to be and then trying to contemplate what that was after Mm -hmm. the film was over. So, uh, and as of right now it is, uh, in my top 10 of 2014 and I don't think it's going to go anywhere because it's high up enough that I don't think anything's going to bump it out. So it is a film that I, I'm not sure if I'd say I love, uh, I love things about it, but the film itself, I really, really like. Uh, Josh, your thoughts? Uh, agree. All right. <laughs> you can get me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. So, uh, okay, your no, no, thoughts? I, 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 liked I felt the same way. I, I liked it. I wouldn't say I loved it, because um, I, think, I think my uh, frame of reference there is I, I do feel like I loved... Uh, Amores Peros, which is one of his... Yeah, it's Is that his good. very first film? I, uh, I don't know exactly. It's I certainly the one remember. that put him on the map. Yeah. And that, I think, is a is a fantastic film. Very uh, uh, hard to watch at times, but in all the right ways. Yeah. Um, so that that's a film that I think is genuinely great. And this doesn't, this doesn't feel as strong as that. But uh, I like a lot of what is going on in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it leaves behind some of the things that I didn't like from say Babel, for instance, like yeah. I, there was a lot of stuff I did like in Babel. A lot, a lot of that I think was, was dependent on the performances, but uh, the, there was kind of a, almost a forced message to that. Yeah. And I don't feel like that was as much the case here. Also, I like the, his, uh, that he's going away from the, um, uh, the format of telling different stories from di- or the same right. story, kind of from different people's perspectives. Um, this is not just one person's perspective, but, uh, but it's definitely not that kind of perspective thing that he plays with in the other. It yeah. was much more ensemble than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, with long stretches of time, where we do not see Michael Keaton at all. Um, but if there is a, if, certainly if there is a lead, it is him. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you're, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's an ensemble film, but it's not, I, I don't remember exactly what you, how you refer to movies like crash or shortcuts or Nashville or Babel or anything mm-hmm. like that. You know, yeah. just all these people who are connected thematically, but not, maybe not directly. Right. Um, there's um, a name for it and I can't think of what it is. is it, I don't know. I've heard things like that called multi-plot. 
Oh, okay. But I don't know if that's the exact term. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it's, uh, it's more held to, to a particular place, you know, Mm -hmm. it it all takes place around in and around this theater. Um, and it takes place over not a real long length of time. I mean, maybe a a matter of days. Yeah. So, um, so that's interesting, bringing it into kind of a smaller scale rather than <laughs> 10 different countries across the globe like Babel yeah. was. Um, this is feels more intimate somehow that way. Um, so I thought that was good. I liked, uh, uh, I like all the performances. I think it's an interesting choice to do the whole one take thing. And that's something I didn't know going into it. But, uh, you know, that's one of those things you start to notice as you're watching a movie and you're thinking they haven't cut. And I feel like it's been about 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, I feel like I notice my emotions first and I'm just like, mm. man, I sure I'm on edge. I wonder why. Oh, <laughs> cause I'm not allowed, you know, a cut can provide you with a certain degree of, uh, uh, release mm-hmm. and yeah. this film does not provide that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and I think they use it well the whole time. You never feel like you can't see anything you know how sometimes that can feel limiting and it never feels that way it always feels like it's where it's supposed to be um i i like the tricks that they do to do passage of time mm-hmm. with it where you'll be on one character and then you kind of the camera will move to seeing the same character clearly later on in the film right uh, they'll go from rehearsals to the actual night of a performance or something like that and yeah. uh i think that those were those were very uh I don't know. Very fluid, very cool transitions. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I go back and forth on what exactly it is trying to do thematically. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think there's some themes which are very clear. And then I think there are other ones that I think are not as fleshed out maybe. And maybe that's why they just don't seem clear. Maybe they're not meant to be. Um, for instance, the second title is a little vague as to what exactly they mean that they do. They do bring it up kind of later in the film. Yeah. It winds up being the the title of a a review, a notable review of the play that they're putting on. Right. Um, but thematically I don't totally understand how that, yeah, how that's meant to, to connect everything else. And that's maybe, maybe that's something that I would get upon repeat viewing. I have only seen the film once. Um, but overall I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I, it's one that was kind of built up for me by myself, not, you yeah. know, no one, no one talked it up for me or anything like that, but, uh, I thought it was an interesting combination. Um, cause in two is a filmmaker that I'm always interested to see what he, he does, even if I haven't loved some of his films. Um, and, uh, Michael Keaton's one of those actors. I feel like I've said this on this show before. Uh, he's one of those actors that I really enjoy and I don't know why necessarily not to say that he's a bad actor, yeah. but uh, I don't know. He's one that you seem to forget about. Maybe, maybe it's cause he hasn't done a lot of higher profile stuff for a while. Right. Um, but he's one that I've always enjoyed. I've loved his comedy work and you know, older stuff from the, from the eighties and things. I, I, I always enjoyed that aspect of him. Right. And I really feel like he's one of those actors who could, kind of have a resurgence and everybody starts talking about him again. Well, this will certainly lead to that. I think I hope so. And I want, I'd love to see him getting more good comedy work, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I hope this does those kind of things for his career because his, his, he's always one that I've enjoyed. And I think he's, 
I think he's a real great comic talent. Um, this movie isn't as much flexing his comedy muscles. Right. Uh, and not that it's, I don't think it's trying to, um, but maybe having him back in the limelight again would give people reasons to be like, he's actually pretty funny. Let's put him in the new, I don't know. I'm trying to think of <laughs> comedies that I actually like. <laughs> I was going to say Judd Apatow. And I was like, eh, and then I was like, uh, Adam McKay. Uh, I don't know, but something like that. Some, yeah. some higher profile, more modern comedians. I he, believe he was actually in an ad. Did Adam McKay make, uh, the other guys? I don't with, know. Uh, Will Ferrell and, and, uh, Mark Wahlberg. If it's I don't got Will Ferrell and sure he did. Okay. Yeah. It's, it stands to reason. I think so. And, uh, uh, Michael Keaton plays the, uh, their, uh, Please, Captain. Yeah, I didn't see that. Was it any good? It's not terrible. And there are moments that are remarkably funny. Um, but uh, yeah, it is interesting. Uh, this is a film that does, you know, certainly does qualify as a comedy, but not much of it comes from the Keaton character. No. Or at least not from. Okay, so I should we should specify that some of the story for those that haven't seen it, and I'm sure that oh, yeah. the only people listening are those that have, but um, it's about a an actor who is a not necessarily washed up, but he used to be a movie star Mm -hmm. made famous for playing Birdman in three films Mm -hmm. and, uh, which, you know, a a superhero very similar to Batman as it turns out. Yeah. Um, and, but that was many years ago. And since then his career has kind of, kind of gone to seed. And so he has, you know, paid money out of his own pocket to put together, uh, a play, an adaptation of a Raymond Carver book um, on Broadway that he is, that he, he did the adaptation, he's directing it and he's acting in it. And so uh, it's basically him trying to put this play on and this play is to him. Uh, it will bring artistic credibility and yeah. maybe people will see him in a different way. It's a move for prestige right. for him as an actor. Right. And, uh, but the whole time, he is hounded by Birdman, uh, which is to say, uh, it is a voice. It is the voice that he it, like. Think about when Christian Bale plays Batman. He play he does a very specific type of voice, and so Birdman ha- has a very a very intimidating type of of voice, mm-hmm. and so that voice will enter into the character's name is Riggin Thompson. And it will enter into his head and it kind of taunts him from time to time. And then sometimes Birdman will actually show up on screen. And it's just, it's clearly just this thing that is sticking with him and it's always undercutting him. It's his self doubt. It's his insecurity. It's any number of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll say this, a lot of the comedy, a lot of comedy comes from that. It comes from the things that Birdman says. Yeah. Uh, but from Riggin, there's actually not that much. And, yeah. and, and that's okay. Yeah. He's more of a, I mean, in a lot of ways, he's a tragic character to a yeah. point. Um, uh, so he's uh, he's kind of a victim of a lot of these things going on, most of all of himself. Um, but he's never he's not a laughy, funny character. We, we don't laugh at the bad things that happen to him, yeah, because we're with him enough to really feel the kind of de- the depression that all of those things suggest and create in him. Yeah, it's hard to laugh at somebody who's just so very sad. Yeah. And um, we know from the beginning that he's washed up. And you kind of get the the sense that, like, uh, you, you know, even in the beginning, people are kind of 
let's say Edward Norton's character kind of looks down on him for being Birdman, for being right. the guy who, who did those movies. They don't take him seriously. Right. And that's one of the things that he desperately wants is to be taken seriously. And, um, yeah, that, that becomes a major theme throughout the film. And so, uh, and to talk about some of the other basic things that we liked, and then there's, there's actually a, one of the things that's good about Birdman is there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to ponder, uh, not merely technically, but thematically, and then artistically. Why did Inurito make certain choices? Like I made mention of the magical realism in the film, which we'll get to in a moment, but like he did not have to do that, mm-hmm. uh, but he does, and it's fascinating. Uh, but... Uh, of course, a lot of people were excited to see Michael Keaton back in a significant role. I, mm-hmm. I certainly was. Yeah. But I myself was also excited to see Edward Norton. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I mean, he was in, you know, the incredible Hulk and, uh, and he's, he's working, he works consistently and he does really good work. He was in grand Budapest hotel. He was in great. Yeah. And, and he was, and I think he was particularly great in, uh, moonrise kingdom. He was good in that one. And so, uh, so yeah, he's he's a a good actor that uh, I feel like he does have something of a reputation of uh, for being a difficult actor, and so for him to have this role as this very egotistical, difficult, prima donna Broadway actor, uh, for him to play that part and play it as as fully as he can, uh, with probably more than a little bit of self awareness, but he's never winking at us mm-hmm. or anything like that. Uh, you know, we are, we, we genuinely get angry at this character when he does some of the ridiculous things that he does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, at, and at no point do we, or for myself, I, at no point did I think like, Oh, that Edward Norton, he's, he's kind of sending up his own image. Instead. I just see the character and yeah. all that stuff comes afterwards. Yeah. So I think I, that's the case with the Birdman character too. Like we know that some of this is close to home for Michael Keaton. Oh, sure. But uh, any part of you that's thinking that during the movie is, is I, I don't think the movie makes you do that at all. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a self-conscious film in theory. Right. Uh, all, there's so many choices that they make technically, uh, you know, as far as the writing, the directing, the, the cinematography, the editing, the acting, there's all these things that are done in a very self-conscious way, but it all blends together so well that once the film is happening, it's just an experience and all that other stuff comes later. Yeah. Um, and then I was also very excited to see, um, Emma Stone, who's an actress who's certainly been uh, coming up uh, primarily in comedy and in the Spider-Man films, uh, I was very excited to see the genuinely great work that she does yeah. in this film. Yeah, uh, she is given lines that a lesser actress or actor would just make almost insufferable Mm -hmm. um, where she's lecturing her dad about like, none of this matters. You don't matter. It's it, you know, it sounds like we all did when we were 21, 22. uh, And we, and I look back and think, ugh, I think I would have hated myself at that age. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But she makes it work. Yeah. And, and she makes, and her character is more than a little tragic as well. Yeah. There's one monologue in particular that is kind of, I think what you're talking about and that it's amazing how that one is able to walk that line between, uh, 
being a, a self-important teenager who self-important young person anyway, who yeah. is telling off her parents and, uh, being someone who's kind of hit on the things that he is truly insecure about. And yeah. it, it does both of those well without falling too much in, in one direction. Yeah. Because here's the thing is if you make her too insufferable and too self-righteous, then I'm just not going to listen to anything right. she says. But there are a few things that bother me more than the, the West Bentley character from American beauty mm-hmm. who just young people who are wise beyond their years. Right. Which there can be, right? Wise beyond their years in a way that is a writer's dream, not the way that you actually run across in real life, right? Like a, the Wes Bentley one is somebody just kind of saying the themes of the movie and right. saying what the filmmaker wants to saying what the writer right. wants the audience to hear, and technically that's what she's doing, kind of. But, but like, she, but it's. I'll say this: I think it's written well, yeah, and she delivers it in a way that really she does seem like a. She, you're right; she rides that line. And she seems like a young person with a real desperation there. Like she's saying this, she believes it. She's hurting her father. She knows she's hurting him, but she's also kind of pleading for him Mm -hmm. to step outside himself, probably so that he'll be a better father to her uh, and a better person in general. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, there's, she really imbues that character with a lot. And that's a great, that scene is a, is, is a great one. It's funny. I was thinking last year, one of my favorite scenes at the movies, even though a lot of people didn't like this, uh, I really liked that scene from Les Miserables where, uh, Anne Hathaway's scene where oh, she, yeah. it's one static shot on her as she sings, uh, whichever song it was. I can't remember. I dreamed a dream. That's the one I think. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite ones this year was that one, which is during that entire monologue, the camera, instead of showing both of them or instead of going back and forth at all, yeah, just holds on her cut away. Right. That's the thing. It just holds on her for the whole time. And uh, I don't know. Both of those were, were scenes that really gave the actor a moment to shine. And I think yeah. both of them did. Yeah. And she really, yeah, she really hits it out of the park. And, and, um, so Josh and I both voted for this year's, uh, BP awards over battleship pretension and, Check them uh, out. and while Emma Stone certainly was not the favorite to win, I still voted for her, even though I think it was really, you know, I thought Tilda Swinton was great in Snowpiercer. I thought Patricia Arquette was really wonderful. There was all five nominees were, were wonderful, but I voted for Emma Stone because I thought her performance was first off. It was something I hadn't seen her do before. Mm-hmm. And also because I think what she did was very difficult. Um, and she pulled it off. Everything that her characters meant to make us feel, I felt. And that is a, that's partially a function of the writing, but also very much her performance. Yeah. So, uh, but the cast in general is also, is, is great. Uh, Zach Galifianakis is, is a lot of fun in it. Uh, I'm a big fan of Amy Ryan. Anytime she shows up in a film or a TV show. Uh, and then Lindsay Duncan, uh, has a short, uh, part as a, uh, theater critic. We'll talk more about that particular role in a moment. But, uh, I, I was mostly unaware of her as an actress. And then I saw her in a film this year called the weekend in which she's wonderful. And then this, I think, even though I think the character is written kind of thinly, um, she's great in it. I think she does a really good job. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it really is basically everybody from, you know, Emmanuel Lebesky, the, the cinematographer to the actors, to the, the writers, everybody seems to be, operating at the absolute top of their game. Yeah. And that's no small thing. And so it is kind of, it does seem strange that that is happening. And yet 
the film is merely something that I really like um, artistically. Thematically, it's something that I respond to very deeply. But uh, but yeah, and so uh, it's a film that I do recommend. I certainly recommend people see it. It is an achievement, and see it in the theater if you can. Um, it would you wouldn't think that. Uh, a film about the the mounting of a theater, theatrical production would be that would be that, that all takes place in a theater, right? You wouldn't think that that would be too uh, a big spectacular uh, type of film, but it is, and uh, and I really recommend seeing it that way. Now, uh, what kinds of things would you say you didn't care for about the film? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think there are any characters I didn't like, or, or I, I, there's some moments when maybe the, the dialogue is a little obvious, but not not as a whole, really. I I think I like it as a whole. Yeah. It's very strange. Uh, when you, for myself, when, when I, when something, when I'm not, when I don't love something, I feel like, okay, so what's keeping me from loving it? Surely there must be, uh, one major or maybe even just a series of minor things keeping me from just wholly embracing it. I can't think of what that might be for this film. Yeah. It might be, you know, sometimes the dialogue's a little on the nose. There are times when I wonder if maybe some of the, some of the style is a little bit too showy and maybe just unnecessary. Uh, but I, but I'm okay with it because I'm so, I'm so engaged and I, I feel like I think, I forget, I forget if you and I were talking uh, off air about how fun it is to see something you haven't seen before. And I feel like another word for that is audacity. Mm. I appreciate audacity. And yeah. this is a film that is ambitious and audacious. Yeah. And, uh, and I respect that a lot. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel the same way in that I'm, I don't, uh, can't point to things that I'm like, Oh, well this is, this is why it doesn't, reach the highest possible level for me. Uh, I think I feel like it's not as powerful as a film could have been, Mm. but I don't think it's a fault of that film. Like, I don't think there's anything this film I feel like wasn't doing well enough to make it be as powerful as it should be, you know, like, right. uh, I think it, I think it works. So there are a lot of people that say that the film is pretentious. Um, which I do think that that is, I think the word is thrown around a lot. It's one of the reasons why we picked the word pretension for battleship pretension. Yeah. I uh, feel like pretentious is what people call a movie when they don't understand it. Yeah. Or when they think it's, there's not enough explosions in it. Well, and that's, I'm not sure if I'd go that far, but I, I but except the first part, I, I agree It's people don't understand it. And so they and rather than acknowledge that, okay, there's something I don't understand, so I either need to do the work to get to a point where I kind of understand it, or be okay with the fact that I don't understand it, which is no, which is a perfectly fine place to, yeah. to arrive. Uh, but I think, I think I think it's people who don't like either of those options and instead say, well, I don't understand it because there's nothing to understand. It's just all this stuff, you know. Or right. sound and fury signifying nothing, and that's it. I don't think they'd say that, but <laughs> they probably would not say that. <laughs> um, Although I believe those words are screamed at the top of their lungs by a character in the film, uh, <laughs> who's only in the film for uh, about thirty seconds. Yeah, that's so. right. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's cool. That guy, that actor, is in compliance, by the way. Really? Yeah, he's the 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 uh, older gentleman who uh, does uh, unspeakable things to. Uh, 
he's the the like the boyfriend, boyfriend of the, of the yeah of yeah, yeah. The huh. restaurant manager so um interesting but uh yeah the the other type of people that i was uh, maybe i was a little bit flippant in that but i i think what i mean is when i say about the explosions people who feel like what a movie is supposed to do is be exciting and right. be fun and if it's not both of those things then i, I mean and this is how nerdy i am <laughs> Exciting and fun is those are words I use to describe Birdman. Yeah, yeah, know? no, I, and those are relative terms. So, yeah. but the per the person usually who says like I'm going to the movies to be to see something exciting, to see something fun, is usually yeah. looking for an action movie or a or something that's a your typical blockbuster. Yeah. And so, other Certainly types a different of type of comedy than this one. Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I feel like we're maybe maybe crapping on uh, on people that that don't like the film, and there are plenty of people that don't. There are plenty of people that that feel that it is self indulgence and all that. And and I mean, I guess it is, but at the same time, some of my some of my absolute favorite films or books or whatever are mm-hmm. self indulgent. It's a it's a, I think an artist looking just exploring something, whether it be a philosophy or a question they have inside themselves they are they have to indulge themselves in order to really explore this thing. well i don't even i don't know if i'd even call that self-indulgent i might call that introspective which i think is no. i think is a positive thing i think self-indulgent is again we all we all end up having kind of different meanings for different words yeah <laughs> but uh when i think of self-indulgent i think of uh, a filmmaker who's creating something that is only for themselves and is of, is of no use to other people and has no interest of this thing in this thing being of any use to other people. And I, and, and that's the thing is, I guess what we where cause I agree with you on that. I, another word for self-indulgent that people often use is masturbatory, mm-hmm. which is to say this thing that's only for your pleasure and literally nobody's around. Like it's right. Someone might be watching, but it's not for them. I, I, I think a self-indulgent film is feels like one that the filmmaker would gladly take someone else's money, make it without caring what they think, not care whether it goes out into the theaters, uh, sit at home and watch it all the time by themselves and think, what a, what a great genius I am to have created this thing. Now, let me ask you this, because the thing is, here's, here's where I uh, get a little strange. I cannot call to mind the last movie I thought was self-indulgent. Um, I think I'm very, very reluctant to use that term because I think it does. I think if you use that, not unlike the word pretentious, I feel mm-hmm. like if you use the term self-indulgent too flippantly, then I think people are reluctant to be introspective. Yes. Um, because they don't want to be, uh, accused of being yeah. this thing. I think there are very few films that I actually consider pretentious or self-indulgent. Yeah. One that immediately springs to mind when I think of those words is Guy Madden's my Winnipeg, which I may have yeah. talked about before that. I, I do not enjoy that movie at all. Um, but that is, that feels like that to me. He wants attention out of that. It seems like he's talking about himself to the degree that it gives nothing to the audience and, and uh, I don't know. I, I've not seen my Winnipeg, but I'm actually a big fan of Guy Madden. Um, I, I liked brand upon the brain, which is another okay. of his films. But then I, after that I saw my Winnipeg and I thought I'd never want to see that movie again. And it make me, made me kind of not interested to see other movies from him as a filmmaker, even though there was another one that I liked. So, I mean, maybe it's just that film. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But when I think of movies that are self-indulgent and pretentious, that's one of the very few that comes to mind. Oddly enough, so here's a movie that I that I uh, would not describe as pretentious, but I would say is maybe one of the most self-indulgent films we've ever seen. 
And it's a film that I couldn't stop talking about for a while. And that is, of course, struck, <laughs> struck by, by lightning. lightning. I knew you were going to say um, as you were winding up to that one. Because, I mean, it's all uh, the, the way you described it, which is the person who just see like it's very much. And it's sort of an extension of themselves to such an extent that they are only uh, interested in what they have to say, not how anybody else takes it. And they drop it like a truth bomb. Yeah. And, but it's only for them. Yeah. Um, they, th- both of those movies could have the, uh, the alternate title or look at my pain. <laughs> oh, geez. Look at my pain and despair. Yeah. Um, except or, or glory <laughs> in the case of my Winnipeg, it's about because they tore down a hockey stadium that he liked. There's a good 20 minutes of that movie talks about how they tore down this hockey stadium. He liked, I'm sorry, I'll stop going on this. Well, you're not a hockey fan. (laughs) Imagine they tore down uh, some stupid Phillies thing. Yeah. I wouldn't make a movie that included a 20 minute thing of me talking about how morally wrong that was. Yeah. Okay. Maybe not. (laughs) Um, but, uh, so yeah, uh, I feel like I mean, Birdman is the kind of movie that when talking about it, you will veer off into what does self-indulgent mean? What does pretentious mean? Mm -hmm. Because it is a film that it's not a passive film ever, really ever. Mm. It is constantly in your face. It's kinetic. There's a vitality to it. Uh, I find it, you know, uh, a moment ago when I said that I found it exciting and fun, another word that I use is invigorating. As I mm-hmm. watch it, I'm invigorated by it because it's a film that just, and I think that's one of the reasons why it, it has the sound, uh, the soundtrack that it does, which yeah. is it just uses, uh, just drums. It's mm-hmm. just all drums. It's all percussion. And it's just, it's propulsive. It just keeps you going and it keeps you a little bit on edge, never really knowing what's coming. And, uh, and that, you know, Every choice that Inuritu makes winds up being just so, one could say counterintuitive, but also seems com- like it completely fits for the film that, that we are watching. Now, to get to, there are two big points that I wanted to discuss. Um, one is, uh, I'll go with the smaller one, and I'll talk a little bit about uh, my own reaction to this. Um, I mentioned the Lindsay Duncan character. Her name is Tabitha. I do not recall her last name, but uh, she is the uh, theater critic. She's sort of the resident theater critic of, of New York. And if she likes your play, it's going to do great. If she hates it, she can close it in, in two weeks. Frankly, I don't know if any critic has ever had that level of power. Maybe, maybe. But um, these days, I, don't, I, I doubt it. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, and she is often, and she's very petty and she's you know she basically wants to she says to Riggin, i'm going to destroy your play why because she not unlike the edward norton character sees him as i believe she, uh, there's a line that i like that she says where she says um she says you're not an actor you're a celebrity don't forget hmm. that yeah and that's how she sees him she doesn't like the idea she doesn't like the idea that that a, a big hollywood actor can just decide they want to make a, they want to you know, put on a play and suddenly yeah. that stage is being used for this person's vanity project right. instead of something that could actually mean something. Yeah. There's a resentment that I think both she and the Edward Norton character share that yeah. is, uh, looking at him and as someone coming into their world and pretending like they belong there. Yeah. Back to the idea of being pretentious. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, but, uh, but yeah, 
But at some point, both Edward Norton, who does sh- kind of share her view, and Michael Keaton, they both tear into her equally. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keaton is allowed more time to do so. But they, you know, they both say, like, what ha- what has to happen in your life to be a critic? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. And I, and I seem to... Edward Norton treats her as, like, just his natural enemy. Yes. More yes. than uh, the, the specific problem that... Uh, she has, but th- that goes on between her and, and, uh, Reagan. Right. And, and so, uh, you know, as I was watching it, I'm, I saw Ratatouille. I saw lady in the water. I saw all about Eve and just various films in which, uh, critics are depicted negatively. Um, and, uh, so you grow used to it. Uh, probably my favorite of all of them is Ratatouille because the character first off is wonderfully voiced by Peter O'Toole and he's got a wonderful design. His, his office is shaped like a coffin, uh, <laughs> which I think is amazing. Uh, but also he's allowed uh, a chance at redemption, which he, which he embraces. Like he's, he's allowed a chance to like really explore what it means to be a critic and he yeah. fulfills that. I, I forget. Did you see chef? I did not see Chef. That's another one that had a character that kind of had an, a similar arc like that. I think you'd be interested really? okay. in that. In that, just yeah. popped up on Netflix, actually. Yeah. So I enjoyed that movie. I thought it was. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually excited to see. It. I like it, it, John Favreau wrote and directed it, right? Yeah. I, I think. Yeah, I, I would actually be really interested just to hear on hear uh, how you feel about what it has to say about critics. Cause that's not what the movie's about. Okay. But that's, that's a major note in it. And there are some, there are these some, movies are seldom about the critics, uh, yeah. but they do go out of their, they do often go out of their way to either condemn or at least explore what it must be, what must happen in a person's life for them to become a critic. Yeah. And there are some moments in, in chef. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting on a rabbit trail here a little bit, but, uh, where you can feel John Favreau who has cast himself as a lead character. Oh, he might as well turn to the camera and speak directly to his critics, not necessarily film critics, but his critics. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. That's, that's interesting. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. And so, uh, so the film paints her very negatively and you have characters pontificating about what it means to be a critic. And I, and it's one of those things that while I love doing this and I love what we do at BP and I find it tremendously fulfilling and it has allowed relationships to form with people that are, you know, incredibly important to me as a person and as a, and as a lover of film, um, you know, it's rough. It can be rough when, uh, when somebody basically says your whole, your whole career is useless. Your whole profession is useless and it's petty and it's, easy and all of that kind of thing. And don't get me wrong. I understand that critics are often stupidly merciless, uh, senselessly merciless to actors and directors and writers. And of course we do this online where the, it, it, it can be even worse. Yeah. Um, there's one critic specifically who's fairly high profile and he became somewhat, you know, internet famous, but, uh, he makes his living uh, as an internet critic and he embraces, a tone that I try that we all that anytime you talk about a movie, you, you have this instinct, but I feel like you and I not to pat ourselves on the back, but like, I feel like we actively try to avoid that tone because I feel like it's not helpful and it's the note of snark and condescension and superiority. And I I just, there's no, there's no use for that. But at the same time, so there are a lot of critics that are doing that. Um, 
but I feel like there are a lot that aren't that really want to embrace art as much as they can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the reasons actually that I, that I was talking about that film, never, uh, not never, not funny. That's a podcast. Uh, <laughs> that's not funny is because it's a film that is small and that very few people are, are going to see. And I have a couple of small platforms where I can tell people you got to see it. And it's one of the rare opportunities where it's like, Oh, I get to do what a critic can do, which is champion something that <laughs> yeah. no one else has seen. Yeah. And so, um, but I mean, you were with me in the car as we were driving home after seeing the the film and it was just, you know, it doesn't take much for, for me personally, but maybe for people in general to, if someone came up to you and said, Hey, uh, what you do is, uh, worthless <laughs> and I question your life. Mm-hmm. And your choices and your philosophy that you arrived at this place that this was what you wanted to do. Um, and I and I don't remember exactly what you said, but you kind of talked me out of it. But I was in a bit of a funk. Yeah. Afterwards. So that was the thing that I that I wanted to explore. And, and David and I talked very briefly about this on our show in which I said that the character in the film, she does promise to destroy his play, but then something happens in the play and she winds up giving it a good review. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I looked at that and thought, oh, there's a certain degree of integrity there, that she wanted this one thing, um, that she went in with, with an agenda, but when she saw something great, she, was, she had to acknowledge it as great. Um, and David, I think probably correctly said that, uh, that that's not necessarily a triumph. You can see it another way. You could see it as, this play was so great that even this horrible woman has to acknowledge it mm-hmm. as opposed to something like Ratatouille where this guy, he does have uh, a very clear idea of what food is and what this restaurant is likely going to be. But he is all too willing to give it a second chance, especially like the moment it touches uh, a place inside him. Mm-hmm. He writes like such a glowing review and, and is and becomes a champion of this restaurant. And Mm -hmm. so, um, and I feel like this is not that I, it, it, there are times when I actually look at the depiction of, of the critic and think "Eh, it's something of a cheap shot. I don't know. What do do you think about this? This one is a cheap shot. Kind of a little bit. I don't know. I can't decide how much it's calling out criticism in general and how much it kind of sets her up as a type of critic. Cause I think there are lots of different types. I mean, we all, we make, we make fun of the critics who like everything like sure. Peter Travers becomes a joke with yeah. people because he can be, he can be so positive about so many different things. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel like what I get here is a certain kind of critic. And I think it's specific to that, that person that sees him as pretentious because that's one of his fears. Mm-hmm. One of his insecurities is that, everyone knows that I don't really belong in this world of, right. uh, let's call it high art or quote unquote legitimate theater. You know, right. there are all these things that are attached to a play based on the work of a respected literature figure in literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how he sees himself or wants to see himself. And, I think in a lot of ways she represents the people that would know whether he belongs right. there and tells him right up front that this is not you. I can see right through you. Yeah. Um, 
So I, I think she stands in more as that than it is a specific uh, comment about criticism. At the same time, I feel like I feel like filmmakers are incapable of dealing with a, a character that's a critic without like getting their little bit of a jab in, yeah. like saying something. I feel like they can't do it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it feels like even if you have a character who's a critic and is a, totally a positive character or winds up being a positive character, that they got to get like a little bit of a jab in, like yeah. th- things like uh, when Regan says to her some sometime at one point, like, "Oh, you." He says something about that thing that people say, like, you, you're just a critic because you can't do it yourself. Right. Um, and so I don't know. I, I think there's a there's an element of, of uh, the writers, I think, wanting to do that. But yeah. I, I don't think that's the point, And I don't think that's the the main way that we're meant to see the character. Um, yeah, I, I hope that's not the case. It's it certainly got it. You know, I saw the film, you and I saw the film with a room full of critics Mm -hmm. and then I saw it with a room full of, you know, regular people, Mm -hmm. normies, um, and, uh, and a lot of, I'll say this in the, uh, in the normie crowd, the, the critic monologue got a lot of laughs, (laughs) um, almost, uh, yeah, anyway. And, uh, and that's the thing is, you know, it's, it's interesting that he, that he does say, you just do this cause you can't do this other thing. And in a way it's almost like he's trying to tap into an insecurity she might have mm-hmm. as a way of kind of assuaging his own, mm-hmm. um, which is a kind of a classic trick, uh, that people can do. Um, but yeah. And so we maybe have spent too much time on this, but I will say that like, uh, my reaction to that, uh, played into the overall themes that the film is exploring. And so, uh, so I wanted to mention it, uh, now and then we'll, I'll reference it later. So that was one of the, one of the, I said it was small and then it turned big, but, um, and then, uh, the net, the next one is a much larger thing, which is the use of magical realism. Hmm. Now I'm so thankful. This is a nerdy thing. I'm so thankful that I saw many years ago, the films of Michael Powell. I'm so glad that I got to see, you know, that I've seen certain films by like Guillermo del Toro and just, and frankly, a lot of Spanish or Mexican filmmakers really seem to, Michael Powell is not that, but, (laughs) but these days, really the only filmmakers doing it, uh, are Hispanic. Yeah. uh, In some way. It's, it's interesting because I, that makes sense that, that it is mostly coming from, uh, I guess it, those three big ones are all uh, Mexican filmmakers, correct? Well, so there's Inarritu, Toro, and Del Toro. Cuaron. Yeah, those are the yeah. big three right now, um, and have been for like the last ten years. Yeah, and in in like Central American and South American literature, uh, magical realism is almost like that's the thing. Like that's yeah. the way you write books. Um, yeah. Most important uh, Central and South American literature is magical realism. So I think there's something interesting in that, that that's part of that, that is part of their cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's cool to see that come out in things like this. Yeah. And it's, uh, but I do know that there are a lot of people who, you know, aren't used to seeing that it is, it and, is. And we're very frustrated by it. Yeah. It is unusual for, uh, it's, it's something that's harder to do in film because mm-hmm. film is so intrinsically tied to realism. I think it's probably easier to do in, uh, animation. Yeah. Um, or and, theater, actual yeah, theater. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I, th- I think if 
I'm trying to think if there are any animated films that I would consider magical realism. It might be more of them than we than we would think of, um, just because we we don't tend well, to classify them in those terms. But I think maybe the closest one that I would say is like Pocahontas, hmm. where it's based on a true story. Hmm. The character models are more true to life than say Aladdin or Little hmm. Mermaid or something yeah. like that. Uh, and the animals don't talk. They do have personalities, but they don't talk. Mm-hmm. But they they do interact with the main characters. And there is a tree that talks because yeah. it's, you know, and it's she's engaging with you know the with Mother Nature, which seems to in some cases have a voice, but is constantly asserting itself in kind of a spiritual way yeah. and a magical way. Yeah. So I think that's the closest one I can think of right now. Yeah, maybe. But I, I think, yeah, like I was saying, it, it's something that doesn't manifest itself as often or maybe as obviously in film. And I honestly feel like I'd like to see more of that, you know? there's Because there's this interesting uh, tension between those two, yeah. you know, magic and realism, um, which kind of by, by necessity creates this paradox. And if done right, it can be, uh, I don't know, it can be very interesting it can and i think what it what it challenges the viewer to do it, it you can't watch mag- magical realism passively at least not the first no. or second time yeah. it challenges you to ask is this actually happening or is it purely symbolic does it matter mm-hmm. and even and and no matter what why yeah. why is the filmmaker doing this yeah this is a, a very a very uh, specific decision that the filmmaker is making. And so like you can't watch some of these choices and not ask why. Yeah. And it just, it's in, it's like immediately engaging. Right. Like yeah. It, you, it can't help but be engaging. Magical yeah. Realism. Because it's one of the bra- things I like about it, your brain has to think, what does it mean for both of these, for both of these things to be true? You know? Yeah. And that's a, that's a question that you can't just kind of wipe away it, it. And I think it can be alienating and I think it frustrates some viewers because you don't want, want to have to, uh, if you're a very passive movie watcher, you want things to be explained for you. Yeah. Um, I know I've had conversations with people that become very frustrated with a film if it doesn't give a clear ending, if it kind of suggests yeah. that more than one thing might've happened. Now I like something like that, but uh, if you are a more passive movie watcher, you might not want to have to try and wonder or to think about something like that. You want to know, well, what happened? Like, and, yeah. and I, that's a, that's a complaint that I've heard from people before. And so I haven't heard people specifically respond to things like that in this film, but is that the case? Oh, sure. Uh, especially with the ending. Yeah. Um, the end, I can totally see that with the ending. Yeah. Like if you look at, um, but also, you know, there are sequences in the film where it, he appears to have magical powers. Yeah. Uh, and, but then there, are, and you want it to be true. I yeah. do. Yeah. I look at him like, oh, that'd be amazing if it turns out he's actually a superhero, but yeah. he's merely an actor. Yeah. That would be amazing. But then there all, often seems to be uh, a reveal that says that, oh, this is just kind of happening in his mind and all mm-hmm. that. Uh, but then, then there's that ending and there's the look on Emma Stone's face yeah. that heavily suggests, if not outright states, mm-hmm. that the character is flying. Yeah. And like, he's not in the room. He was looking out the window. We see her walk in. She looks down first because he's kind of suicidal. Why did I say kind of? Kind of. He is suicidal. (laughs) Uh, She looks down first, doesn't see him. She looks up and smiles 
smash cut to black that, spoilers <laughs> yeah whatever uh does it even matter a spoiler like that i feel like doesn't I don't even matter for a film like this but yeah it could I, we are operating on the assumption that you have that you've seen the film. usually um, if you're new to this show usually when we get this far into describing the movie it gets hard to actually talk about it without talking about yeah. major plot developments so yeah. if you are new and we have seriously upset you we apologize know that going forwards that it's probably better to see the movie You'll you'll get more out of the conversation, I think. Maybe I'll cut this out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but that ending is is one that people because we've been t- we've been t- throughout the film, things have been suggested that are fun. He has magical powers. That's mm-hmm. fun, and then those dreams are dashed immediately, mm-hmm. and just and that's the pattern: expectation, reality, expectation, uh, uh, not expectation, but uh, illusion, reality, mm-hmm. illusion, reality. Mm-hmm. And then there at the end, they're one in the same, and it turns out, oh, maybe, but wait, we were told all movie long that this is not true, so what does this mean? Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, uh, a lot of people said that they're really turned off by the ending. I like it. Uh, it does, but I'm also a little bit frustrated by it because just like, well, like, just when you're confirming this, seemingly, mm-hmm. now it's over, and now I'm left with A, was it all real? B, uh, why are, like was confirming that it was real or not? Was that so important to you, the filmmaker, that that is how you're ending your film? And if so, that's that speaks so much to all these other thematic elements. Mm. Um, and so, but to me, ultimately, it's it's a character who's been set free. Yeah, um, he has been constrained by so many things mm-hmm. by expectations of others uh expectations of himself his own pride which we'll get to in a moment um just all of these things and then he does he commits an act that is you know i we already mentioned he tries to kill himself um which i apologize for framing it this way but suicide is viewed as sort of the has been viewed as the ultimate selfish act mm-hmm. um it's getting especially if it's you know if you're like, if you're doing it like in the midst of tremendous physical pain or something like that, and you want to get out of it, it's a bit more understandable. Uh, or if there's a mental illness or something like that, but this is just a character who just can't seem to stand himself and just can't seem to handle the pressure of the expectations he's put on himself. Mm -hmm. And so he does this, uh, but is given a second chance. Mm -hmm. So he literally has hit the bottom. Like he's at the very bottom of the well. He can't go any deeper. He's given a second chance people love him not merely his fans and stuff but also his family and in that moment he feels upbeat and happy and it seems yeah. strange at the end that like is he going to kill himself like is he going to try and kill himself again feeling this maybe feeling like okay my life has now peaked mm-hmm. and so i might as well end it and it's like no it's not that it's that he now feels finally unburdened by all of these things because he now feels loved by by other people and it turns out he was loved the whole time but now he actually understands what that means that's how i view the ending yeah i I think it's a great ending because i think it it, uh first of all brings in that question of of the suicide again brings in um the fear that we have of that but then reverses it to the opposite of that and um, then again, plays on the bird thing where, yeah. uh, Birdman before was, was a character that, 
uh, Birdman as a character within this film is a character that's always telling him how great he is and how amazing he is. Yeah. And, um, and that humbling himself is a bad idea. Right. Exactly. And, and the times that he's seen flying, uh, flight earlier in the movie is something that points to him being far above everyone else. Right. But, uh, at the end of the film, the suggestion of flight is more, uh, it's less of a being above people and more of, like you said, something being free, being, uh, able to, to, um, I don't know, realize himself, realize his potential, maybe his true yeah. potential. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and listeners, if you've, if you've seen the film, feel free to, uh, in the comments section, say what you think of the ending, what you think of the use of magical realism, because, one of the things about it is that there is no definitive answer as to what the filmmaker was trying to do. And I guess maybe the filmmaker could say, well, this is what I was trying to do. Uh, I don't actually care about that. I care to a certain extent, but to me, it's just, that's just one more opinion now. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, so we would love to get your, your feedback on what you thought of it, uh, the inclusion of it, but also what you thought it meant. So, okay. Moving, uh, into the, the, the thematics, uh, just for, just for a moment, I feel like I don't have a, a great deal to say about this. Um, I mentioned the idea of him being weighed down by his own pride. Uh, I'm sure I have mentioned this Tim Keller sermon a million times, but I love it. It's, I believe it's called the man, the King delights to honor. And it's all about Haman, uh, from the book of Esther. And Basically, Haman is a prideful character, except he hates himself. He wants validation from other people. And when we think of pride, we think of somebody, as we just mentioned, somebody that thinks that they're above everybody else. They, they think they walk into the, into the room confident that they are now the best person in the room. Um, that's what we think of as pride. But pride can also be thinking of yourself as the worst person in the room, but more specifically thinking that everybody in the room hates you. Now thinking everyone loves you, thinking everyone hates you. Both of those heavily imply, not imply they're acting on the idea that everyone's thinking of you. Yeah. As much as you're thinking of yourself. This is a right. thing I, I deal with uh, a lot. I, I mm -hmm. feel like, people are just constantly hating me and just, and keeping tally. And it's like, they're not thinking of me at all, but that's the thing. I think a lot of people, especially because, you know, this is a film that deals with show business. A lot of people feel like, well, they may hate me, but at least they remember me. Right. You know, and the idea of being lost completely and being totally irrelevant, being mm -hmm. a, being a has been, right. Which means I'm not currently this. I'm mm -hmm. not anything now. I used to be something, but now I'm not. Yeah. Um, that is like the most terrifying thing of all. And so I'd rather be convinced that everybody hates me as opposed to complete apathy. Yeah. Which is something that, uh, I think, I think rings a little, um, un more unsettlingly true in a culture where we see things like these celebrity reality shows, you know, mm -hmm. you see these people that the world has forgotten about, Yeah, but they they would rather be they would rather make fools of themselves than believe that they are a person that the world has forgotten about. Yeah, and it's I mean, uh did you I forget, did you ever see that 
Joan Rivers documentary, a piece of work. I never did. I heard it was very good. It's very good. I absolutely loved it. And, um, and in it, cause she was on, I think the first season of the celebrity apprentice and, hmm. and it was viewed as like a big, and that's the thing everybody knew. Everybody still knew who Joan Rivers was, yeah. but it was just this idea of keeping herself relevant and, Oh, reality shows are what are in right now. I can't not do that. Yeah. I need to be a part of it. Yeah. I need to stay relevant, always relevant. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Joan Rivers in many ways was a deeply unhappy woman because she was constantly pushing herself to be that thing. Yeah. Um, even though she knew she was made fun of, um, she agreed to do a, a comedy central roast where she genuinely said, I felt every one of those jokes. Like hmm. I hated being said, I, I hated having those things said about me. I want people to love me, but I'll do the roast because a, it pays and B it keeps me out there. It keeps me in the spotlight. Yeah. And so it's a really great documentary. I highly recommend it. Um, but yeah. And so this is a film, there's a duality to the character of Riggin. And in my, and some of it is you're the best. Some of it is you're, you're the worst until you do this play and you get accolades for it. You're the worst. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Birdman saying, no, 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 that, that play is ridiculous. You're, you're already the best. You just need to acknowledge you're the best. Um, but either way, the character is just thinking of himself all the time. He's a very selfish character, a very self-centered character, yeah. even though he is tremendously sad. And I think fairly sympathetic, uh, he's still very selfish. Yeah. It's a little weird too, to think about, you know, talking in terms of the pride that if you were to take the words of the Birdman character, change them up a little bit and, uh, hear them in a, in a gentler kinder voice. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like a lot of the, uh, power of positive thinking philosophy that we hear today mm -hmm. to, to tell him that, you know, you're, you're a bird man. And that's great. And so many people love that. And that's all you need to yeah. worry about is how good that is. Yeah. And I, <laughs> Hey, with the snap of your fingers, you could be right back, right back on top. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's funny to think that th this film knows enough to know that that is a, that is a negative voice, yeah. but uh, I think in viewing this film, we need to realize that, that, uh, it's easy to see that as just the bad guy telling him things he wants to hear, but the right. kind of things that he's being told are things that other, other places in culture we, we take and, and see as perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so, and I feel like just the, you're absolutely right. Just the way that they acknowledge, they understand what this voice is. And we see him as a, as a, we see the Birdman voice as the, the negative thing, but we also absolutely see the appeal. There comes a moment when he snaps his fingers and a building blows up and there's a big, uh, mechanical bird that he has to fight <laughs> and all these things. And it's this, and you know what? It's a fantasy sequence. And, and immediately I'm like, I'd see that movie, <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's invigorating in that moment. And I, I wrote down a line here, where Birdman is saying, people, they love blood. They love action, not this talky, depressing, philosophical BS. He doesn't say BS. Um, and just that kind of thing. It's like, it's telling you what you want to hear and what we, the audience, want to hear. We, mm -hmm. like, we want to see Birdman. We, like, we're tired, not tired of that implies, like, we don't like it. But, like, we see how sad he is. And we realize, oh, if he had this level of confidence, 
It'd be amazing. I mm-hmm. would love to see this this guy be Birdman again and have yeah. these moments of triumph and all that. But again, that wouldn't be enough either. Mm-hmm. Nothing will be enough. When you are focused on yourself, it doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how many people love you. It doesn't matter how many people hate you. The only thing that matters is that people are paying attention to you. And they would be, but the thing about that is it's never actually enough. Right, because you realize in the film, and this is another thing, an interesting uh, comment I think it makes on entertainment in general and and art maybe, uh, that either way he goes, like you say, it's never enough. If he tries to go, uh, when he went the route of Birdman, when he Mm -hmm. went the route of being the action superstar, nobody took him seriously as a legitimate actor. But when he tries to go the other way and put on a play, put on a play based on a Raymond Carver story, they don't believe him as a serious actor. They see him as the dumb action guy. So either side, he can't win. And it's never enough, like you said. Yeah, and there's a line that uh, Edward Norton's character has where he says, popularity is the slutty little cousin of prestige. (laughs) And he had one, so Riggin had one, but didn't have the other. And now with prestige, he's not going to be remarkably popular, but it's like he's being told, no, 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 this is what you should have. Mm -hmm. And then you'll be happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my guess is, let's say, but that's the thing, when we see... There's a wonderful little scene where uh, Edward Norton's character is lecturing uh, Michael Keaton's character about like, oh, come on, you're just a washed up old has-been. And, um, and he's immediately interrupted by people being, are you Riggin Thompson? Can we get a photo with you? And all that kind of thing. And uh, and there's a, a little pang of envy on on Norton's part where he mm-hmm. knows he's the best. He's the best actor on Hollywood in, in sorry, the best actor on Broadway. Everybody loves him, uh, but he kind of wishes that he could be popular too. Mm-hmm. along. How amazing would it be to have prestige and popularity? Yeah. But of course we, that's the thing. You watch these characters, you look at this world and you recognize that won't be enough either. Nothing is enough. Mm-hmm. You're just constantly serving yourself and just, and you have a character, you have a, a character played by Naomi Watts where she says, when I was a little girl, um, all I wanted to do was be a Broadway actress and I wanted somebody to just say that I, you know, oh, but now here I am, I'm an actress on Broadway and I don't feel anything. I just want somebody to tell me I've made it, you know, and then someone says you've made it. And she seems she seems to appreciate the gesture more than actually accept that as a right. fact. Yeah. And so it's just it's just this hotbed of insecurity, like nobody is confident <laughs> really at all, uh, except maybe the Emma Stone character, and even she is tremendously broken. Yeah. Um and so it's just uh it's such an uh, such a fascinating look at insecurity. Mm-hmm. Maybe the maybe a, a film that is m- a better look at insecurity, as much as we've just said it, is of course the entirety of Charlie Kaufman's work. Um, <laughs> if and, you if you want an insecure filmmaker, here is uh, this, this. This is where you one. go. And I remember um, if there's any way to see this, the uh, acceptance speech that he gave for adaptation. I believe it was. No, he won for uh, Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine was the one. That's correct. Um, but I remember him being up on stage and thinking, yeah, that's, uh, that's basically what I thought. He's super insecure. Yeah. Um, and it comes through in his writing. It's, it's, I don't think it's an act. Yeah. And there's, I mean, 
you know, and as listeners know, I'm fair, I'm a fairly insecure person and Charlie Kaufman captures it so well that yeah. when I saw adaptation, there's a, there's a bit of a inner monologue on the part of the character, Charlie Kaufman, in which he says, why do I feel the need to constantly apologize for my existence? And I, <laughs> like a week before had written that almost verbatim in a journal. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, hmm. okay, well. I guess I should pay attention. Yeah. Um, and it's just, he captures it. So, but that's, that's the thing. He's so, he's so insecure and so solipsistic. And one could say self-obsessed that he writes himself into his script. Yeah. And I feel like you don't get any more than that really. <laughs> no, but it, it never feels like, I don't feel like I dislike him for that. You know, like I don't feel like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It feels like there there should be an arrogance behind that sort of thing. And I don't think there really is. I think there could be that kind of problem uh, with pride that you're talking about in him. Right. I think that's very possible. Um, but uh, he is a filmmaker who's who, who uh, primarily a writer, but also a director who seems to be very open about his own problems with that insecurity. And I think maybe this is a lot of the way that he examines those problems. And I think that's why there's so much, uh, so much real personality to his films because, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's real. This is, this is really the way he feels. He's a filmmaker who's not afraid to kind of delve into the, the more upsetting aspects of his own personal problems. Yeah. And I feel like, um, yeah. And I don't mean, I, I certainly don't, because I think for a number of reasons, one, I think the film is so good and genuinely entertaining and he finds such an interesting way to incorporate himself into his script. Uh, one of them is that the character says, Hey, I'm going to write myself into this script. I mean, they're <laughs> like, I do like the meta quality. I like the, the Uroboros quality to mm-hmm. it. Uh, that's the snake that eats its own tail. They refer to that, uh, by name in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and yeah, and I actually don't think it's an inherently negative thing that he does because part partially is because he recognizes that this is actually one of the better ways to adapt this book in which you have characters trying who, who are obsessed with things and that will move from one to the next to the next uh, in an attempt to, I don't know, find some kind of identity some kind of self-definition or something like that which is exactly what he's looking for Mm -hmm. and so it winds up being a really a really novel and exciting way to explore this uh this film Mm -hmm. or this this material yeah and so uh but yeah adaptation is the film that we're talking about and again there's the there's a duality here because charlie kaufman is a character in the film and then he has a brother named donald kaufman both played wonderfully i think by nicholas cage who looks exactly the same he doesn't do anything like he has the same hairline he he's gained weight and he looks the same in both parts but the way he carries himself and the way and his cadence you always know if you're looking at charlie or donald it's fascinating yeah um but charlie is always striving for integrity he's striving for prestige mm-hmm. as opposed to popularity that's yeah. what he wants i wrote down some of his uh, crazy lines <laughs> in which he says so he's trying to adapt a book called the orchid thief 
And he says, I don't want to cram in sex or guns or car chases or characters, you know, uh, learning profound life lessons or growing or coming to like each other or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. Or as he says, to succeed in the end, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, I mean, the book isn't like that and life isn't like that. It just isn't. And I feel very strongly about this. Um, that was all one long sentence, basically. Um, it's just he has such an idea of what he wants this to be. He says, I wanted it. I wanted to present it uh, simply without big character arcs or sensationalizing the story. I wanted to show flowers as God's miracles. I wanted to show that Orlean never saw the blooming ghost orchid. It was about disappointment. That's what he wants to do. He wants to, and, and he seems to feel like he's a failure unless he does this thing, something that people can admire and something that's real, something that's true. Um, and then Donald comes along and Donald is writing a script called the three about, uh, <laughs> about, uh, a kidnapper, uh, a cop chasing a kidnapper. And then it turns out spoilers that the kidnapper, the cop and the person that was kidnapped are all one person. And it's a multiple personality thing. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a dumb script, but apparently it's there's it's structured really well, and it's the kind of thing that people like. And so Charlie's man, uh, Charlie's agent, is actually really intrigued by this script, and it'll make a, a whole bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charlie then just feels terrible. And so Donald, I'll say that Donald doesn't exist. He's not a real person. Charlie does. Charlie Kaufman does not have a brother named Donald. He created him for the script to be basically his Birdman. Yeah. A much friendlier Birdman and mm-hmm. actually upbeat Birdman. Yeah. And one that the character of Charlie comes to l- really realize how much he loves him and how much mm-hmm. he needs him. Yeah. But he's the one constantly saying, well, why don't you do this? This really easy, simple, kind of intellectually lazy thing that'll make <laughs> you a bunch of money. Yeah. Why don't you do that? Here's the answer. Yeah. And so, but he won't let himself do that, but there's always the temptation. Yeah. But again, so if you want to look at it as basically two sides of the same person, mm-hmm. um, which I think you can when you look yeah. at some of the backstory of the film, uh, and just, uh, it's, it's very much, it's very much like Birdman to me. It's a character striving for happiness, striving for identity, striving for a certain degree of peace and like, Oh, do I get it this way? Do I get it this way? And in the end, the, fe- the emphasis is, is only ever on himself. And I do think that, the character of Riggin is probably more self-centered than the character of Charlie. Uh, but Charlie is still self-centered. He's still focused solely on himself, how people see him, how he will be viewed. Mm. And he's making himself miserable because it's just a black hole. It's a snake eating its own tail. Eventually, uh, th- a snake that eats its own tail is not going to turn out well. Yeah. Um, it will die uh, in a really comical, silly fashion. <laughs> and so... I want to go back to that sermon that I was talking about, about Haman, uh, by Tim Keller, and I'll link to it. I've put it on the website in the past, in which he says that, like, Haman, uh, there comes a a time when the the king Xerxes asks Haman, what would you suggest, how would you suggest we honor uh, the man the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks it's going to be about him, and he says, well, here's what you do. You have... You put this man on the king's horse, put him in the king's robes. You have the king himself lead the horse through town and says, this is how the king honors those he delights in. And Keller says, what a, what a fascinating image 
this is what Haman wants. He wants the king to say, this man is amazing. Yeah. I'm the king. You all love me. And I think this guy's amazing. So you guys should too. And he says, and Keller just talks about how much, how telling that is, but that in the end, uh, even that probably wouldn't be enough for, because if you don't feel loved by yourself, by anybody else, then other people saying it is not going to make it so uh, mm-hmm. partially because of course humans are, uh, fallible and you can lose their love. Uh, as we learn from, from Riggin, you know, he's not what he used to be. Right. So, um, so before we move on to what the solution is, which spoilers, it's God. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll throw I'll throw it to you because I've been talking for a while. Like, th- I mean, this is a, certainly this is a thing that listeners know. This is a thing that I struggle with. I I desperately want people to to love me and think I'm the best. Then of course I I get I say of course as though it's a foregone conclusion. That's really awful of me. Um, People will send in emails and say very wonderful, encouraging things. And I think, wow, that's great. Well, back to it. Uh, <laughs> back to hating myself and thinking I'm not, and that I'm absolutely worthless. Um, and so that's definitely, this. both of these movies really strike a deep chord with me. Do they strike a chord with you uh, on any level, like on a, on a personal level? Maybe not to that extent, but like, how do you respond to this aspect of these characters? Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think I respond to that. that. That's a thing that I feel like all artists deal with to a, to a degree because it's not... Um, because artistic, quote-unquote, success isn't something that can be measured directly. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, a lot of other jobs, like if you're doing your job, you keep if you keep your job, then you're doing a good job. Or you get a promotion, you're doing a good job. You know, like there's right. a lot of... Uh, more obvious qualifiers outside of uh, in, in regular jobs. Um, whereas a career in the arts is kind of, uh, it's kind of vague. Like there's popular that like there's popularity and prestige. Yeah. Um, but both of those things can come and go very quickly. And uh, both of those things can't necessarily be trusted. And neither one of them really gives you, what you want, which is the feeling that you're doing great work and everybody respects the work that you're doing also because generally the two don't go hand in hand. So you're, you're probably alienating one group by finding success in the other. Right. Um, and that puts a lot of artists in this constant position of, of feeling undervalued by some demographic. Yeah. Um, by one side or the other. So yeah, I, I, I think that's interesting. I think that's something that I've thought of as an artist. And I think a lot of, of artists deal with, would you, would you personally rather have uh, prestige or popularity? Um, I don't know. It's hard to say like trick question. It should have been God. Oh yeah. You want God, <sighs> Josh. All right. See you next. We're week. trying to be a good example for people here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go on. Um, that I feel like that's a hard question to answer because the the type of things that are generally 
I think in terms of at least say film art, the things that tend to be popular are not the type of things that generally appeal to me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, while the idea of having lots of people like a movie that you've had something to do with, um, I, I think the types of movies that I want to work on and to make are not necessarily the type that lots of people would enjoy. So prestige is your, that's what you want. That's your God, right? Uh, I think I've nailed it. Yes. Thank you for your <laughs> perceptive, uh, read on my answer to that question. I got it. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, an ultimate, and I guess, and obviously when you, when it's in either, or you like you picked your, your prestige, which is probably what I would do. But in the end, obviously we would want both. Yeah. You know, everybody wants both. Everybody wants both. Um, well, hang on now. There are some filmmakers I think do not care. I think they <laughs> want popularity. Um, and so, uh, Michael Bay. So here's the thing. So to bring us back to, to bring us ultimately where we need to be and to go back to that sermon that I wasn't expecting to reference that uh, this often, um, to be loved, to be respected, to be valued and to have somebody pay attention to those aren't inherently bad. Those are good things. Um, and one thing that again, to reference the sermon, um, the thing that Keller ultimately says about Haman, uh, and his desire to be, uh, praised by Xerxes. Um, and it winds up rhyming a little bit, which I'm not super thrilled with, but that's all right. He says he didn't want the wrong thing. He asked the wrong King. Uh, and that is where I want to bring us to right now. Uh, Last night uh, at my uh, men's group Bible study, we had kind of a sort of a meditation night where we basically listen to music and and pray and that sort of thing. And uh, the first song that came up was one that actually, and by and large, I tend not to like praise music. I, I don't like a lot of, not unlike film, I tend not to like a lot of Christian musicians. Uh, but I actually liked this song quite a bit, partially because of just, a, it used a turn of phrase that I really like. Uh, I believe, okay, so the song is called Brokenness Aside, and the artist, I think it's called uh, All Sons and Daughters, or something like that, um, and the lyric is, uh, I am a sinner, if it's not one thing, it's another, and, I, and frankly, I like the idea of taking something like, if it's not one thing, it's another, and putting it into a Christian song, uh, but it's, uh, one of the things that it mentions is that... Uh, as a sinner, you're just tangled in lies. And the idea of being set free, like being tangled in lies, just like you can't move. I picture Frodo when he's in the, in the, the spider's cave in uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, that he just gets tangled up in the web and he can't move anywhere. And he's just, he just seems so useless. Uh, and then in the film, the Wolverine, it's not that good of a movie, but there's a scene where he's making his way towards, the the fortress of the of the villain and one ninja after another is just shooting arrows into his back each one tied to a rope and by the end he literally can't move because there are about 50 arrows all with ropes it's not one ninja it's another absolutely yeah if it's not an arrow it's a rope you know what i'm you know what i mean and so uh and it gets to the point that he can't move it actually makes for a very dramatic image um 
And so it's this idea of just being tangled and you cannot move forward at all. And so I want to go back to Birdman. What is the thing that allows him to fly? What is the thing that frees him? And it's this idea of not looking to others, not, not putting faith in yourself, not defining yourself by these things, by prestige or popularity or whatever. Um, but instead by, by God who already loves you, who already thinks the world of you, who sacrificed himself for you. And I know that I'm saying these things and they're very conceptual. And I, and I know that when I say it to myself, to, to encourage myself, it does very little, but it really should do a, more. And what I want to try and emphasize with these films is just imagine the look on Michael Keaton's face at the end of the film. He's a man that is freed. He's miserable the whole film. And finally he feels free and he feels like he can fly. And this is what it can mean to actually try to embrace the idea of God loving you. The only in, in many ways, I don't mean to uh, don't read more into this than I'm saying the only being that really matters, you know, uh, you know, the, the concept of praise from the praiseworthy. Nobody is more praiseworthy than God, and he praises you. He loves you. Not, And I don't mean praise you because you're just this amazing thing, but you can be an amazing thing. And he made you amazing in your own specific way. And yes, mm-hmm. it might not be the thing that gets popularity. It might not be the thing that gets prestige, but it might be the thing that he delights in and loves. And... If you and the thing is, if you find your your value and your identity in that, then you f- then you are free to then focus on other people and kind of pay that forward a little bit, um, instead of just being constantly mired in self doubt and self examination. Not that self examination is a bad thing, but when it leads to just complete self obsession, it it is obviously a bad thing, and you will not see. And the only way you'll ever see people is just as a way of mirroring as mirrors, so that you can just look at yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all very broad. What I've just said. Uh, can you think of any way to be more to to specify uh, what I've just said? Because that's the thing is. For myself, I know that when people say these things, these very general things, I feel comforted for a moment, and then I try to think practically. How do I make that work in my everyday life? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's the same with a lot of things that that we need to change about our lives is uh, figuring out what the work you need to do to make that true to you is to know something is to tr- is true and to live as if it's true are two different things. Um, so I, I don't think there's any clear answer for certainly not for everybody. I think made them the answer may be different for everybody, but I think uh, it, it's about figuring out what, what work you need to do to, to understand that truth and to really let that sink in and to let that affect the way that you live your life. And I don't know, the way you approach your surroundings and your situation. Yeah, I think that's that's a good idea. I mean, it is different for everybody. Recognize the the things that are keeping you personally from accepting this and right. try, and sort of adapting it, not changing it. Yeah. Um, 
but adapting it to fit that. Yeah. And, so, and sometimes it's just meditating on what is it that you do believe if you don't believe that, you know, yeah. like what, what is the difference and why is, yeah. why is there a difference in what you believe? And it could mean acknowledging lies and yeah. saying like, okay, well, if, if I feel like, if I feel like, uh, God isn't enough. And even if I acknowledge it, even if I acknowledge that God is enough, but I'm not living that way, then clearly there's part of me that doesn't believe that. So if I don't think God is enough, then what do I think is enough? Mm -hmm. And it could be prestige, popularity, any of these other things. So if that's what I think, then why is that not the case? Right. You know, or, or maybe thinking like, if you have an idea of that being the everything, you know, that being the answer, what does that actually look like? Yeah. Cause I think sometimes in, uh, in examining our own view of the perfect situation, our own view of, you know, I I've got the popularity and the prestige. Sometimes when we look about what maybe even saying out loud, what we think that should be and what we think that'll feel like and look like, we can realize that it is a, a fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that uh, some stuff that, that we've talked about on here uh, for me is the idea of, oh, I want literally everybody on the earth to love me and think I'm just the best <laughs> and to forgive me my mistakes, which they won't need to do often because I very because in this world, I, in, in this world, I'm I'm thinking up, uh, I very seldom make mistakes. That is pure fantasy. (laughs) Everything I just said is so ridiculously extreme. And I think that's actually, if people are honest with themselves, I think that's what they think. I think that's what a lot of people want. Yeah. Is they want the extreme version of it. Yeah. And some, and they don't even recognize it as extreme. Right. If we hide it from ourselves that this, that that's just normal. Yeah. Um, if we we hide how extreme those beliefs actually are from ourselves, it makes it, we're allowing ourselves to live in that fantasy yeah, and to face those fantasies head on and say, you know what? <laughs> I'm wanting to be all things to all people. And that's yeah. not, uh, that's not realistic. Well, and helpful. that's, you know, and, and that, and that reality is something that can sometimes be depressing the mo- like when you first realize, Oh, this actually isn't a feasible thing. So I'm never going to get this thing that I want. I'm never going to be loved by everybody this way that I want. Um, you know, I'd say feel free to feel free to take a moment and actually mourn that and recognize, yeah, this thing that I've been chasing is not a real thing. But then the next step is recognize that while that's not true in the way you thought, it is already true in the reality. God already loves you and has already sacrificed himself for you. It's not a thing you have to work towards. Mm-hmm. It's not this promise of this thing off in the distance, just to meant to keep you going. It's a thing that is happening right now. And hopefully that will temper the, the, the morning a little bit. Um, and it's a thing that, you know, if you're, if you're like me, you have to remind yourself of yeah. on a regular basis. It's one yeah. of the reasons I do this show, yeah. but anyway, Okay, I think that's where we're going to have to leave off. This episode, I did not intend for it to be this long, but that tends to happen on here. Interstellar, it seems like it should be a long episode. Winds up being like an hour 20. Um, So, okay. Uh, We've talked about a lot of stuff here. If you have any questions, uh, which I assume you do, because again, we are 
talking about very broad things. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to email me, Tyler at more than one lesson.com or Josh, Josh at more than one lesson.com. You're always welcome to comment on the, uh, the specific post on the website. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh long at the Josh long. You can also like us on Facebook and you can sign up for our newsletter. So there's a lot of ways to keep up with what we are doing on the website and uh, on the podcast. So, and you know what, actually I never, I, I don't say this very often, but uh, if you enjoy the show, I would suggest, uh, or not suggest, I would encourage you to please uh, leave us a, a good review on iTunes. We don't get a lot of those uh, anymore, but they do uh, help raise the profile a little bit. So uh, I would really appreciate it if you were able to do that. So, okay, we will leave you with that. Next week, we will be talking about Rain Man, the best picture of 1988. So until then, uh, Josh, thank you for being here. You're welcome. And thank you guys for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.